Does the channel provide value? Focus on the foundation. I am a travel vlogger. It's always about communication. Build those partnerships. What are the problems that you solve for your clients? Just being ahead on the technological side of things. Leading an organization. You not only want to survive, but you want to thrive. They said it wouldn't last, and they said that you can't drive profitable and incremental revenue through the affiliate channel. But here we are, 20 years later, and the affiliate channel is alive and kicking and generating profitable revenue for thousands of retailers across the globe. Hi, I am Jamie Birch, your host of the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast, where we talk to some of the industry's best and brightest about their careers, about leadership, and about how to drive profitable revenue through the affiliate channel. Hey, this is Jamie Birch, CEO and founder of your award-winning affiliate management agency. So today I have a, a special guest. You know, they're all special, but they really are. Uh, and this one's no different. Alan Rappaport uh, of FMTC and the co-founder and guru at dealtaker.com. Uh, formerly at DealTaker. Uh, we have a great, great conversation. Uh, but before I introduce him, let me talk about uh, a thing that we've created for you. So you need scalable revenue, uh, but is your affiliate program and the manager of your affiliate channel in a position to scale that revenue? And how do you know? How do you know if you're really in there? Well, you got to benchmark yourself uh, and you got to look to uh, to others and see what, you, what you're doing. So we've actually created a checklist for you to, to really help you find out, are you ready to scale uh, your re revenue in your affiliate channel? And are you able to do it profitably? So it's our affiliate marketing accelerator checklist. Uh, and you can download that at jbcommerce.com slash accelerator. So if you're looking to see, uh, are you going to be able to, and is your channel position to grow profitable revenue, this checklist will walk you through it. But now let's get to our episode. So Alan Rappaport and I've been friends uh, since he started in the industry in 2004. Alan tells us the story today of how DealTaker was created and a really interesting uh, journey of selling the company, buying the company back, and then selling it again. And so we talk about lessons learned through that process. If you're either a, an affiliate or an advertiser, and a, an event like that, uh, a sale uh, or an acquisition is in your future, uh, whether you're going to sell or, or acquire a company, you definitely want to listen to this section, especially where Alan and I talk about the difference between an asset purchase and a stock purchase. Uh, I took a ton of notes and, and he really gets into the question of, of uh, affiliates building their brand, kind of a continuation of our discussion with uh, Lisa Riolo not too long ago. Uh, and it's a really good discussion from the mouth of a deal site owner and, and an industry legend. He's been around for a really long time and, and one of the great guys in the industry. So why don't we just get right to it? Here is my conversation with Alan Rappaport. All right. We are live with Alan Rappaport. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Yeah, you know, as we were just uh, logging on and you were talking about closing your tabs and all that, I was looking at my phone and I remembered I did a, uh, I moderated a panel in AS, ASE and I did this long uh, spiel about turning off your phones. I don't know, I must have been on like a, some sort of moral uh, battle against people, you know, being distracted during uh, presentations. And no lie, 15 minutes in, guess whose phone rings? 
It was mine. <laughs> of course. I didn't set any of my stuff. So I, I now have a process I follow that I have to check it off and say it's done. But yeah, awesome. It's so good to to chat with you. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I've had some things like that happen. Sometimes I'll set a uh, maybe an inappropriate sound for my tone and then I'm in line at a <laughs> supermarket and somebody, uh, you know, people start looking at me, but it happens. Yeah. Yep. And uh, congratulations. Happy anniversary. Uh, I think 21 years this year. 21 years, 26 together, 21 years. Our marriage is old enough to drink. You know, we're in 2020. I think uh, <laughs> so that's appropriate. That's, yeah. You know, I, I think someone uh, someone said their conspiracy about 2020 was that uh, time travel is real and someone keeps going back to change something early on in the year. And it keeps messing stuff up in new ways. And that's what we get to experience every month. <laughs> well, I think you're uh, celebrating an anniversary at JEB too, correct? 16 years? Yeah, 16 years on uh, on the 10th. So uh, 15, we celebrated a bit. And this one's been a little unique because we, you know, the whole team is working from home. In fact, I'm doing our first podcast recording from my new office at my house. Uh, so yeah, 16 years. Um, uh, I think, uh, you know, six, you know, 16 years ago right now, I was trying to figure out how I was going to pay a mortgage in, uh, in a few days and, uh, feed two new kids and the two that we already had. So it was, uh, exciting and stressful times. And now my company's able to drive. So insurance rates will go up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And you, you are starting to send kids to college, I saw on Facebook. It's a crazy time to do it. But yeah, my oldest daughter is now a buff at C- CU in Boulder, uh, University of Colorado. Um, despite everything going on, social distancing, a lot of remote classes, some in-person classes, uh, she's doing great. Um it's just a, a, a crazy time. They are, they just completed a two-week quarantine um, in Boulder, Colorado, only for kids ages 18 to 22. So um, mm. they're uh, not veiling that, that their intentions on that too well. But um, but yeah, she's, she's doing great. They're going to end the semester at Thanksgiving. They're, she's not going to go back after that. She, she's just going to go fully remote. But uh, yeah, it's amazing. I can't believe I'm old enough to have a kid going to college. Yeah, like two things going on. Like, I can't believe either of us. I have a 24-year-old and a 20-year-old and that either of us are old enough for kids in college. And then how different it is uh, than when, when we were that age and going to college. I I haven't talked to anyone yet who kind of had their kids through that. So they had to quarantine on campus for two weeks? Well, they went to campus and things were kind of open. You know, you had to wear masks, you had to eat outside. Um, but then uh, cases started spiking, you know, college kids yeah. partying and stuff like that. Not mine. No. Mine's an angel. Yeah. And um, I was too. I was a perfect angel <laughs> as well. I bet you were but, too. Absolutely. But then a few weeks ago, they said, all right, we got to kind of lock it down for two weeks. They cleared out a dorm, an entire dorm to be the quarantine dorm. Um, so they started doing a lot of that. But I guess it worked and cases are down and they're starting to reopen up a little bit. Hopefully they can stay a little bit open through Thanksgiving, but yeah, it was a struggle. My wife and I and my kid, you know, talking about if she should even go to college, what kind of experience would it be? Yeah. 
Should we defer a year? Um, But we kind of decided, hey, this is her experience. It's going to be different than our experience, certainly uh, at this time in our in our world. Um, But this is her experience. And yeah, she'll have that story to tell. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It, it definitely, there are, until you start talking to people, there's all these unintended consequences and, and really unique things that once you get out of your own bubble, you start to, to really hear about, you know, we're not in the, the college bubble right now. So seeing how different areas of the country and, and different people are taking it is, is really unique. What's now you, you've worked remote for a really long time. So, you know, this quarantine hasn't been such a shift uh, work-wise, or, or maybe it has, what's the biggest kind of adjustment you've had to make since March? I mean, I have to be honest. I mean, my adjustment has been very small. My adjustment is basically adjusting to my family's adjustments. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, I've been working from home for 16 years. Uh, FMTC, who I work for now, is a completely remote team, always has been. Um, so we had no bump in the road at all. We just kind of kept going, kept having our, you know, we used zoom extensively before this all hit. So we just kind of continued doing that. Um, Our industry as a whole, I don't know if we're going to get into this later, but I think our industry as a whole is holding pretty strong uh, through this, you know, online shopping uh, me specifically, you know, deals and coupons, you know, people are doing more online shopping. They're looking for more deals and offers and stuff. So um, it's pretty much business as usual. Now, dealing with my kids around. I work in the basement. <laughs> it's a finished basement. So it's not like I'm with the spider webs and everything, but uh, <laughs> I am a little bit separated, but of course, having my kids uh, schooling from home, they're both old enough to handle their own business. So it's not like we're doing homeschooling, yeah, um, yeah. but just having them around. Uh, my wife works at a restaurant. So that was shut down for a few months. Oh, yeah. um, so having her around, um, you know, that's been the adjustment for me as far as my day-to-day life and my work life. It's been pretty, pretty steady. (laughs) Luckily, knock on wood. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we haven't had the thing that we're adjusting to now is um, we've made a dedicated uh, room for my office. I think in March or April, when we uh, put our office in storage uh, for JEB, um, I, I rotated between basically counter space at the house that I could use and what wasn't interfering with everyone else, but that just didn't seem to work. So this week now we're adjusting to a hundred percent at home. We, we, we had a co-working facility for a while and still do. Um, uh, the restrictions are pretty lax up here in Coeur d'Alene. So now everyone's adjusting to daddy being home all the time. And when there's a podcast to record, you know, the front door needs to stay locked. I've, I, I've uh, worn out the printer. Actually, the only thing I've printed in months with the printer has been uh, I'm on a podcast. I'm recording. Uh, open this door only if someone's dying or the house is on fire and I'm at risk. Uh, <laughs> do not knock. Or say my name unless you want to get uh, slapped around or something. <laughs> so do you have plans to open your office back up or have you made the decision to go remote uh, from here on out? Yeah, you know, what we have said is 
Um, and it's, you know, it's a good question, a question I don't know if we have solved, but what we've committed to is we're going to close uh, and be closed through 2021. So mm-hmm. looking at 2022 uh, to open back up again, um, we are finding like there's two, two concurrent findings that we've discovered, you know, one we can, like everyone has, or most people, we can do a hundred percent of our job remote. And we can keep the same company culture that we had before using uh, the you know Slack and Zoom and and things like that. Um, but there's way more intention that needs to be behind it. So you know there's not the uh, uh, collision spots that there used to be in the office. You know the kitchen, the foosball table. Uh, and, and we actually had water coolers, so the water cooler and stuff like that. So the random um, interactions and collisions with staff and, and the random discussions, that's not, that, hasn't, that doesn't happen in the same way. But we've been able to make sure that it still happens. So uh, we instituted office hours. So uh, myself and Stephen Robinson host office hours twice a week. And that's like anyone have any question that they want to chat about. They have they, they want to run through an idea or anything. They can come join us. Um, and then we have stand up meetings where we didn't have those before. We didn't need them. So we, we've been trying to figure out how to keep the culture. And I think we've been doing a good job so far. The employee surveys are good. But, um, you know, we're planning on keeping the office closed. Uh, through all of next year. Um, but I think I think what we're doing is we're clear with what we're doing now and open to it all changing with new information. So, you know, if, if uh, there are a few of us who really enjoy working from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see us doing something like we had a very large office and a lot of meeting rooms. Um, uh, we have uh, we do have staff around the country. So we had a, a really cool um, team meeting room where, uh, you know, we had nice audio video set up so everyone could join and everyone could see and hear. Um, and so that was really cool. We'd like to do that again. But um, yeah, I don't know. We may roll like this. We, we, we may get office space. Um, I, don't, I don't really know yet, but that's what we're planning to do. So important to keep that company culture so important you know you can have yeah the employees you know you can trust them they can be have good experience but you've gotta you know keep that culture going so doing what you can to do that we had a a company lunch a couple weeks ago it was real nice you know we all got on video and went around the the horn and said what we ordered for lunch and you know just those kinds of team building company culture type things are real important yeah, and it, it does take more effort. Uh, and I think once you get past that, oh, we have to do this, um, mm-hmm. it makes a difference. And all the studies show that, you know, to keep engaged uh, employees who are fulfilled in their work, it's it's more than just compensation. Uh, it, it is the, the team that they work with. So, uh, yeah, so we're trying to figure that out. Um, you know, a couple of the podcast guests I had had some really good ideas. Uh, Steve Denton does a, uh, a show and tell with staff. They have a young company that uh, is only two years old, two and a half years old. So not everyone knows each other. Like we have employees we've had for seven years 
And so uh, with new employees, I think it's important to do a little more. So we're trying to figure it out. Um, but, you know, you guys have been doing that, you know, doing the remote. I think FMTC is totally remote and has been, right? Yeah, yeah. I believe it always has been. Uh, technically based in Austin because that's where Brooke Schaff, our CEO, yeah. is. But, um, yeah, we are completely remote. We've known each other for, it's seemingly, well, decades. Um, yeah, but not all our listeners. So how did you go, you know, from, from a young buck, what's the, the career path all the way to, uh, to uh, FMTC? And I think you're the data feed account manager right now. Correct. Yeah. But I started, um, I haven't been in the business as long as you, I know you've been in it since the nineties. I didn't get Whoa, in it until hey. 2004. So I'm a relative newbie in this. Um, <laughs> so I had a whole uh, career before this, you know, I, I went to school and I had degrees in accounting and finance and math. Um, so I worked uh, a lot of, a few jobs before I got into this industry as a a public accountant and actuarial uh, services, sales auditing, stuff like that. Um, Eventually landed in payroll tax uh, for about six or seven years. I was with a payroll tax company. Um, We went through, you know, the company got bought out. That company got bought out. There was layoffs after layoffs. Eventually it caught up to me. Uh, The day I got laid off, I called my brother up, you know, let him know what had happened. And he said, that's great news, Alan. (laughs) It's great that you got laid off because I need help. I'm working on this dealtaker.com thing. Um, It was just kind of a hobby, but it's, I'm actually starting to make some money with it. And uh, it would be great if you could come help. Uh, My brother and I had been in business before um, with doing some uh, software consulting business. And, um, work pretty well together. You know, he, you know, in order for a startup, especially to be successful, I think you need a, an innovator and an implementer. Uh, you know, my brother is, is a bit of an innovator. You know, he's comes up with wild ideas, wants to do them all. I'm kind of the innovator, you know, where I can make sure we're, uh, you know, taking notes, filing all the paperwork and, everything we need to to do, um, hiring, firing when we need to do. So, you know, we work really well together. We don't step on each other's feet. So he said, I need your help starting to make money. You know, he got picked up, deal taker got picked up on a Black Friday kind of um, news story. I think uh, deal taker is one of the first sites to have like a dedicated Black Friday kind of deal and coupon section. And um yeah, he started killing it. So, you know, I was laid off and out of work for a few hours uh, before I said, okay, yeah, let me try this out and see, see where it goes. Wow. <laughs> well, that's that, you know, I've, I've been laid off uh, during the dot-com boom and I wish it was only for a few hours. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Now, Deal Taker, you guys have a pretty incredible uh, story of acquisition and buyback and things like that. Can you walk me through... Uh, you know, that whole, like, what was it like to make the decision to do that full time? And what was it like growing it? And then through all the transactions, um, would love to hear that a little more. Yeah, sure. A lot. Very interesting story, actually. (laughs) So in 2004, around there is when I jumped on board with my brother. 
uh, at DealTaker, we started really trending up, started picking up steam, and um, started looking to be acquired within the first few years there. So in uh, 2007, we started traveling around, um, testing the, the waters and the market. And we actually sold the company um, at the beginning of 2008. Uh, we sold it to a, a fairly large uh, print media company in the Southeast. Uh, so it, they were looking to get into the internet <laughs> and we were an internet company. So they loved that. Um, but they didn't have a ton of expertise, but we liked them. Um, so we decided to move forward with them. So we sold it in, in the beginning of 2008. We both stayed on board. Neither of us uh, wanted to run the company. Neither of us wanted to be the president. You know, being the president of a standalone company uh, like DealTaker was before is one thing. Being a president of a subsidiary of a larger, you know, parent company is a little different. And I think my brother and I both wanted to, you know, spend all of our time working on deal taker, growing it, making it better, and didn't necessarily want to be just a liaison between deal taker and the parent company. <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, you know, started a, um, a search for a new president of the company. We started dealing with being under a larger company like that. They sent us an interim president, you know, a, a newspaper guy, you know, super nice guy, but certainly didn't understand our business at all. Um, we eventually, you know, hired a guy who did know the business a little bit more, um, but just through it all through the parent company and everything. Unfortunately, we started trending down pretty quickly as a, the sad story of, of being acquired in, in that sense. Um, you know, they kept asking me, you know, when, when they were uh, first acquiring us, what do you think we can do to grow the business even bigger? And I told him my ideas on it. We got the interim president. I told him the same three ideas. We got the new president. I told him the same three ideas. And, uh, you know, they just decided to go in different directions. Hmm. So it was a little bit frustrating. It was a kind of a sad story imagine. a little bit. <laughs> uh, see your baby go. Once we hired the, the new president, probably nine months in, my brother decided to part. I still uh, stayed on board. Um, so wrote it out for a few years. Um, they, they blamed, you know, there was some blame on the downturn. You know, this is from like 2008 to 2012. So some of the blame for the downturn and the trends down were the, the economy, you know, the crash, the Panda updates that started coming out with Google. But yeah. really, if you look back at the data, a lot of the downward trending was our own faults, you know, changing URL structures, moving our platform um, to like WordPress, adding too many merchants all at the same time, you know, things that we knew wouldn't work or we knew didn't work back when we were running it, but, you know, decided to move forward with it. So continuing the story, you know, it, it wasn't really working great. So after about four years, I was let go, but it was kind of a mutual thing, but I was officially let go. And um, it was kind of a relief to started thinking about what I could do next, talking with my brother, 
And probably within three or four weeks after I was let go, the parent company called me up and said, hey, we don't know what to do with this thing. We don't know how to save it. Do you want to buy it back? Oh, wow. Um, so it was really interesting. Was that an and I expected they, call? Was that a complete surprise? It was, yeah, it was definitely a surprise. Um, you know, I figured they might just run it into the ground. I knew they were losing money hand over fist. You know, at this point, I think there was, you know, maybe over 20, 25 employees. They had a nice office in downtown Dallas. Uh, they had a lot of contractors and all sorts of stuff they were spending money on. So the company, you know, deal taker itself was still making a decent amount of money. They were just spending too much money. And I don't think they knew how to get control of it. So my brother and I spoke about it. And we're like, well, I don't have a big interest in buying it back, but let's kind of make a low ball offer and see what happens. We did, you know, pennies on the dollar for what they, uh, what they spent on it four years earlier and they accepted it. You know, I think they just kind of wanted to get it off the books and out of their hands. Um, you know, they're a public public company and I just did, don't think it looked very good um, consistently losing money on this, this entity that they had. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we purchased it back. It was an asset purchase. I made sure of that. I didn't want to buy back yeah. the whole company. That's I said, a I huge want... difference, right? Asset versus stock. Exactly. So I said, yeah. you know, I don't want any of the employees. I don't want any of the contracts. We kept two contracts, the hosting and FMTC. We were using FMTC at the time. So we kept those two contracts, got rid of everything else. We kept one contractor and then that was it. So we turned this company that was losing money hand over fist to the very next day. It's a very profitable company because we just didn't have the overhead anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was interesting. And we um, ended up you know, running it for another few years. Uh, pretty bare bones, skeleton crew, You know, just a few of us running it. Had uh, talks all the time about you know, how you know, do we want to put some more investment in this? Do we want to grow it? Do we want to keep running it? And unfortunately, you know, it just didn't seem like there was the uh, enthusiasm there to grow it. So we just kind of kept running it for a few years. And then after a few years, I decided, okay, maybe we should sell it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, we're not going to grow it before it dies a slow death. Let's get it sold while there's still some value to it. And somebody can hopefully do something with it. So, <laughs> so four years later, fast forward to 2018, um, we sold it. Again, this time I did not stay on board, but it is an interesting story. You know, we grew the company, we sold it, we bought it back, and then we sold it again. <laughs> Man, that, you know, that is it, it's such a great story. And I'm, I'm so happy for you. You were able to, to do that uh, as, as a friend. It, it's, a, it, it's great to see um, those four years with the company that acquired must have been very difficult. I, I've worked at places where, from day one, it was a struggle. And I, I can't believe I was there for three years, uh, <laughs> let alone four. That must have been difficult. It It is, you know, and like I said, you know, I had my ideas and I'm used to running with whatever idea I have when I'm running the company. There, you got to run up the flagpole. You got to get approvals. You got to get this and that. People keep asking me my opinion. I keep telling them. And then they choose not to do it. And I'm okay. You know, I'm a team player. I'm like, okay, as long as I get my day in court, you heard what I had mm -hmm. to say. If you decide to go in a different direction, 
That's fine. I chose not to be president. I could have been if I wanted to. So let's go in this other direction. And I'm, I'm fully on board. Um, and, you know, certainly, especially in our industry, you don't know what the answer is. You know, anybody who says they're a guru on this or that, you know, you better be wary of that because you just never know. So I didn't know that what I was thinking was the right thing. That's what I felt with my experience with Deal Taker in the industry. That was more than what these guys had. So, yeah, it was frustrating. It was frustrating to keep repeating myself and then keep going in different directions, continually uh, seeing the trend go down, um, being in calls where people are saying, well, these are the reasons why. And I'm like, no, that's not. It's actually these reasons why. And uh, so, yeah, it, it was frustrating going from running the company being able to hire quick, fire quick, this and that, to having a whole publicly traded company above you who has had a lot of whatever, 150 years of success in you know print media. But this is kind of their first foray into the Internet and they just don't know. You know, their suggestions yeah. to us were like, hey, let's take out a full page Sunday circular ad in in our newspapers. It's like, well, you know, we could try that. And we did try it and we got no traction from it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's just like, you know, people who are reading newspapers may not be the same demographics, the people who are shopping online, especially in the, uh, you know, late 2000s. So. Yeah. Now, one thing you touched on, and we've never talked about it on this podcast. Uh, I've been through, I acquired a company in 2016. So the difference between, uh, between an asset and a stock purchase. Can you, for our listeners, kind of go over uh, the difference and why it's a, why it was necessary when you bought the company back to do an asset and not a stock purchase? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, asset purchase basically means you can pick and choose what you want to purchase from a company. So like I said, when we uh, bought that company back in 2012, uh, they had a ton of employees, a ton of contracts, uh, office space, um, and they had um, commitments for all of this stuff, which we didn't want to acquire. You know, if we had done a stock purchase, that would have meant we would have just bought everything, everything mm -hmm. that's associated with DealTaker Inc. Um, we would acquire. Now we could go in the very next morning and let all the employees go, liquidate all the physical assets in the office and everything, but that would have become our responsibility. And of course, any unemployment claims would have come to us. Any uh, remaining liabilities that they may have had, you know, that hopefully they would have disclosed, but any liabilities they would have had would have come to us. Any um, issue that happened two years before that somebody decided to sue for, you know, two years yeah, later, yeah. we would have hand, had to handle um, any kind of contracts, like I said, for the the office space or contractors they had in, you know, Eastern Europe or anything like that, we would have been responsible for canceling those. And some of those have, you know, cancellation penalties and stuff like that. So it, it would have been a mess, you know? <laughs> so yeah. we wanted to just pick and choose. And like I said, they had so much going on at the time that really was not useful. So like I said, I just wanted the hosting I wanted the FMTC contract. I wanted this one contractor and then everything else. I didn't want to deal with the le the legal legality of it, the financial responsibility of it. 
anything like that. And then, of course, um, you know, fast forward four years when I was trying to sell the company in 2018, I wanted to sell a stock sale, <laughs> you know, I wanted, yep. for, I for the same reasons, right? Exactly. Now I'm the seller and I would prefer to sell a stock sale because, you know, we had no liabilities. I mean, it was a very clean, vanilla, basic company, but I also would love to have sold it and then walked away. Whereas with when I sold it as a as a as an asset sale, you know, I still own the company. They're just buying the, you know, the code and the site and all that kind of stuff. So I still have to file a return at the end of the year. I still have to file closing paperwork for the company. You know, I still have to do all that stuff after I've already completed the sale, which is kind of a pain in the butt and costs money and stuff like that. So I was trying to do a, a stock sale, but um, that didn't uh, that didn't fly. So I ended up doing an asset sale. So I still had to do that for the next six, nine months or whatever. I still had work to do to close out the company. Yeah. And we, we acquired a, a business in 2016, like I said, and I had really good mentorship uh, and, and counsel at the time. Uh, and we bought assets. So like you said, we could pick and choose. I want the name, I want the website and mm -hmm. these contracts and no employees. Uh, and uh, and the thing we were worried about is nobody knows what an upcoming lawsuits that there could be or right. liabilities that aren't discovered in the discovery process. And if you buy the stock, you bought the whole company. And, and if someone sues the company you acquired, they're suing you now. Uh, yep. And no lie, a week after we made it public, two bankers show up at my office uh, because they, 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 they felt and thought that it was a stock purchase. Uh -huh. And that those liabilities were now mine. And uh, it kept, it, I saved six figures um, in, in liabilities that I was able to, you know, I didn't buy those. So it's super, super important. And like you said, when you sell it, you definitely want to sell everything. <laughs> when yeah. you buy it, you just want to get those assets. So uh, that that's uh, that's an interesting distinction if you've never done it before. And for those affiliates that are out there listening, if you're looking to acquire or purchase, this is a really uh, important lesson for you to get before you get into it. Absolutely, I'm glad you made uh, that choice when you purchased your company too. <laughs> uh, you know, and and I sometimes I run and gun, and uh, you know, so we can move fast and make mistakes. And that was one area that that we didn't. So I was excited about that, and um, it, it definitely worked out uh, for us. Now, looking back, um, you know, we talked about culture being important. Um, the acquisition that that we went through, um, the cultures of the two companies were so different that uh, after about twelve months, we just said, "Hey, um, don't go away, mad." Let's just go away. <laughs> Let's go our separate <laughs> ways. Uh, and it it really came down to, uh, and, and we were good friends, still friends, um, but the cultures and how the companies were run were so different. They just could not merge. Do you think some of the issue was in the different cultures of the company? For the first sell? Um, yeah. For sure. Um, you know, like I said, they were an old newspaper company, um, you know, and- in Virginia, you know, they, we, we went to visit them. They're all wearing, uh, you know, suits with bow ties. 
you know, we're meeting in their the rotunda of their hundred year old building. And, wow. you know, it's so it's, different. And of course, with us, you know, startup internet company, you know, we're used to wearing shorts and t-shirts and, yeah. you know, going to get fast food and stuff like that. So the culture was very different, but that was also what was intriguing. I think on both sides, you know, we wanted to be more um, official. We wanted to be more serious of, you know, a real company back in those days, you know, maybe the networks and the merchants were quote unquote real companies, but all the publishers were just flying by the seat of their pants. You know, that's kind of what the thought was back then. And we wanted to be more official and, and more real. We wanted to have, you know, an actual parent company who's publicly traded an HR department, you know, the paychecks coming from this department, you know, we wanted to be more official and they wanted to be more hip and they wanted to be more online, you know, and they had websites for their newspapers, which were actually ranked pretty well, um, but they weren't monetizing them. You know, they were just kind of out there. So they loved an online company. They were hoping to maybe monetize on their rankings on their newspaper sites Mm -hmm. Um, just didn't work out. But, you know, so in one sense, it was intriguing and kind of cool to have that culture clash. In the end, you know, our four-year-old company wasn't going to change the mind of this 150-year-old company. So in the end, it may not have worked out the best, but that was, you know, we were fully aware going in that that's what was happening. Yeah, and it took the newspaper industry till recently to figure out how to monetize. Um, yeah, that's been a long, long road for them. Absolutely. So, what what kind of lessons have you learned that you would share? You know, if if uh, an affiliate is listening now and and they were uh, where you guys were in like two thousand seven, starting to look to acquire, what what are some of the things that you'd share with them that you learned through that whole process? Gosh. Um you know, try to find the good fit, (laughs) Uh, you know, get your affairs in order. You know, we spent a lot of time coming up with, um, you know, presentations on, you know, that how we present ourselves to these possible buyers. We had actually hired an investment banker as well to uh, do some research and introduce us. Um, And, um, Yeah, just beware. We also devoted, and this was my project, so I remember it well, a lot of time, a lot of money into, you know, getting our site, our um, company audited, you know, so we can have an audited financial records that we could present at the time. You know, if you're just flying by the seat of your pants, sometimes, you know, your Excel spreadsheet of your (laughs) accounts receivable and accounts payable may not be good enough, you know, if you're looking to cash in, you know, you got to have good records. You got to have all your T's crossed, I's dotted, your incorporation paperwork, every kind of paperwork. You just need to have it ready to go or else you're going to, you could look foolish. And I would imagine with your accounting background, that wasn't uh, all of a sudden a big project that you had to get squared away. Like, yeah, that was in your background. So you were relatively ready to go. I was, I mean, and that's, one of the main reasons my brother wanted me on board is because I could take yeah. care of the books. You know, the first thing I did in 2004, 2005, whatever is say like, okay, we need to get QuickBooks 
We need to yeah. start keeping track of what we're doing. We need to actually file some returns. You know, we need to keep all this updated. So yeah, when we went through the actual audit, you know, with a third party company auditing us, uh, yeah, I was able to turn around that stuff pretty good. You know, when they were asking for, uh, you know, P and L's or, uh, you know, balance sheets or anything, I knew where to find those. They were all updated um, because I kept them updated. Uh, you know, certainly there's some, uh, you know, intricacies in there that maybe I had to backtrack, you know, some depreciations and stuff like that. But for the most part, it, it was a fairly smooth process, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's probably not typical. I can tell you, I, we've been approached uh, many times over the 16 years we've been around and probably for the first 10, uh, when, you know, I, I think the first company that looked at us to acquire, when I sent over the uh, reports, uh, his comment was, um, none of this means anything. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think you need an accountant. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> he, he, he was kind enough to sit with me. And this is it's got to be 10 years ago. Kind enough to sit with me at lunch uh, after we played a round of golf. Uh, it, that was a super stereotypical day, like playing golf. I'm awful at it. Um, <laughs> and then we're going to go over these things. And he showed me how the PL like meant nothing. And I have, I have a finance degree, uh, and I still, uh, we weren't able to have that. So it, I think it's very typical for people to not have all of that stuff together. And that makes the process sometimes months and months longer as you got to wade through and, and, and sometimes redo everything. And that's why I think it's important to have the innovator and the implementer, you know, and sometimes in rare cases, those two roles can be the same person, but mostly you kind of need to have that head in the cloud person yep. who's just thinking of all the great things that you can do and the great partnerships and what we could do next and how we can build and how we can expand and all that kind of stuff. But you kind of need that partner that implementer who can say, okay, we can do this, but we got to do these five things first, or we can't yeah. do that because of this, this, and this. And, you know, I mean, I remember talking with my brother about toolbars back in the day, back in the two thousands. And it's like, toolbars are like a cool thing and we can set cookies and this and that. But back in the day, toolbars were considered pretty black hat. So I kind of had yeah, to be like, yeah. Hey, um, you know, we could do a toolbar, but then, probably going to get kicked out of some programs, some merchant programs. And, you know, these particular merchants that we're making a lot of money off of don't want to work with two bars. You know, so I, you know, I'm kind of the, the party killer, right? I'm the party pooper yeah. who says like, it's a good idea, but this and that. So it's the same kind of thing, you know, with being acquired and looking for that kind of stuff, you know, it's good to have that guy who's saying how great your company is and what you got going on and what you've got, you know, for your five-year outlook and this and that. But you also have to have the guy say like, here's the paperwork, here's the returns that we filed, you know, here's yep. how we log in here and here's how we pay our bills. And, you know, you got to have that guy too. So, <laughs> And if you don't have the implementer, all you do is have great ideas unrealized. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, in order for the company to be successful, you got to have the product, you got to yep. have the, back end and you got to have the marketing, you know, those three things. And if you have a great, fantastic product, but you don't have any marketing for it, you're not getting the word out and you're not, you know, 
keeping track of your bank accounts and stuff like that, then you're going to fail, you know? So you really, a lot of things in business are three pronged, you know, you have to have three things in order for that chair to stand upright, you know, chair is not going to stand with just two legs or one leg. You got to have at least those three legs. Yeah. And, you know, I do some coaching of small businesses and I think the one commonality I've had in every experience was uh, their financial reporting and tracking was uh, non-existent right. in most, uh, minimal or incorrect in in others, uh, and that that can lead to if you don't know where you're at, how do you know what decisions you should be making? Exactly. Yeah, if you want looking to hire a new person, looking to get a new contract, how do you know you can afford that? You know, it's it, you got to know that stuff. Gosh, and I made all the wrong decisions. That could be a, a podcast. That that could be a podcast series on mistakes Jamie's made in relation to accounting uh, and financial management. Uh, we don't need to go into that, though. Uh, but let's talk about let's talk about coupon affiliates. Let's talk about deal sites. Like one thing you mentioned is the toolbars. Uh, we didn't talk about talking about this, but are you kind of blown away? where we are with toolbars like right now where companies getting acquired for crazy sums of money. And when you and I, you know, back in 2004 and then, and even before that in 2002, they were the the enemy for the industry. And I, I just don't hear a lot of people saying much about it anymore. Is that surprising to you? It's, it is very surprising that there was this shift four or five years ago, even um, where, Toolbars were evil. They, you know, if you used it, you're going to get kicked out of half of of the affiliate programs you're in, the merchant programs. And then, you know, and I don't know how many names we want to name, but, you know, Honey came along and suddenly it's like, okay, you know, and it's cool. And it's not a toolbar. It's a browser extension, you know, and it's like, well, you know, it's kind of the same thing. And um, so, yes, I am very surprise you know like i said even when uh back in the mid 2000s when it was just me and my brother every year maybe a couple times a year we would have these conversations you know what can we do next how do we grow and every single conversation we'd have you know toolbar would come up and every time we'd be like can't do it you know we just can't risk being thought of as a toolbar affiliate nowadays seems like it's okay. So yeah, I'm very surprised at how that's all transpired just in the last you know few years. Do you think it's, uh, and I don't have too much insight into this, do you think it's just the consumer behavior has adopted it so much uh, that everyone ha- has had to be okay with it? Is, is it consumer driven change? Um, I think that that could be part of it. But I also feel, you know, and I just listened to your podcast with Lisa Riolo and you guys were talking about publishers becoming brands. Yeah. Um, You know, like I said, back in the 2000s, even the early 2010s, you know, we were kind of the publisher, the affiliate site, especially like a deal and coupon site was kind of a necessary evil almost, you know, Um, merchants didn't really like them or respect them, but you kind of got to work with them and how can they punish deal and coupon site? You know, how can they give them less um, commission than a content site or a niche site? You know, and that, that was the whole thing. But 
over the last, you know, five, seven, 10 years, some of these publisher sites, especially dealing coupon sites have become brands themselves. And we're, you know, they're starting to get a little leverage and they're starting to say, well, we don't need to beg this merchant to work with us. They're begging us to put them on the site. Now they're charging slotting fees and, and, and all this kind of stuff. So I think a lot of this shift has been branding of publisher sites and, and, you know, dealing coupon sites in particular so that they now have a little leverage to say, well, I think we will go and do this browser extension. And if you don't want to work with us, that's fine. We got, you know, this whole other long line of merchants who want to work with us. Plus, you know, we're going to be one of your top five, uh, you know, publishers if you do work with us. So you probably want to keep working with us. <laughs> now I was going to say the other thing is the leaving a site, right? So you're, you're in the purchase process or, or uh, shoppers in the purchase process, you know, before they have to leave the site and then come back for that merchant to complete a sale. You know, with a browser extension, they don't have to leave the site. And I think it's logical to want to keep a shopper on your site. I mean, it's just a logical thing. You know, there's a whole industry around cart abandonment. So, yeah, you know, I, I would think a, a merchant would want to, instead of having somebody leave your site, go to a deal and coupon or some other kind of site, and then hope, keep your fingers crossed that they're going to come back. Even if they built their cart already, they're not guaranteed to come back, you know, and having a toolbar browser extension will keep them on your site too. Yeah. That's a really interesting point too. Cause yeah, we've seen the, that industry of cart abandonment, uh, uh, kind of come, uh, into its own the last five years, maybe, maybe a little longer. Um, but yeah, that's that's one thing that keeps coming up in these discussions is um, this shift from uh, the advertiser having the power in this ecosystem to whoever has the audience has the power. And that's that's always felt right. You know, whoever has the audience, it's their audience. And one thing you mentioned in uh, some of the mistakes that were made, or I think it was mistakes made, but launching too many merchants too quickly. Mm -hmm. From an advertiser side, I don't understand that. Wouldn't more merchants lead to more traffic for you, more exposure, more, you know, doesn't, doesn't more merchants lead to a more vibrant and broad and, and deep a product offering for your audience. Can you talk to me a little bit about why, tell me what's the concept of too many merchants? Yeah, and I could just talk from the vantage point of our particular site, because it could work different, obviously, depending on the site with DealTaker. And I'm going back 10 years now, the last time I actually ran these analysis and stuff. But um, we had a magic number of merchants it was 1,500. That might not be your magic number or anybody else's magic number. And that's a lot of merchants, 1,500 merchants yeah. on your site. But we ran all sort of sorts of testing where we would like maybe make less merchants or, you know, take away some merchants. And it seemed like our earnings per merchant would decrease 
we increase the number of merchants and our earnings per merchant would decrease. So for whatever reason, whatever Google algorithm at that particular time was in place, and it could be different today, um, that was our magic number. And it was proven, um, you know, during um, when we had our parent company, they said, well, if we make X amount of dollars per merchant for 1,500 merchants, if we have 2,000 merchants, we'll make X times 500 more than what we were doing before. And I'm like, totally well, logical I'm, math. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not sure that'll work because of algorithms, you know, <laughs> because of Google. And, you know, we tried it before we had it. And then we, we did. He said, okay, in this next year, let's get to 2,000. In the year after, let's get to 2,500. And we did that. And that, among other things, <laughs> you know, we our, our total revenue decreased, even though we had more merchants. So, you know, I think it's about the quality of the merchant, um, the quality of the offer, but it's also, you know, about the Google algorithms and stuff like that, that may like more or less pages and content and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a game. You got to play with it and see what works best for whatever site you're running. I've never heard that before. That is... <laughs> A first. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, sure. I was going to say, like, my hypothesis was, uh, you know, the American, it was at the Cheesecake Factory. You know, they have, <laughs> if I remember, I haven't been there in a decade, but they have like a 19 page menu and you can get every type of food possible. Uh, and too many options leads to uh, decision fatigue and you know, if you have too many merchants, there's just too much and you have to get curated. But you you even saw that that affected, uh, you know, Google's algorithm and sending you traffic. Um, and, and like you said, it was a long time ago, but that's a super interesting take. Yeah, it definitely. And, and I think the curation part is part of it as well. You know, if you go look, if you're a consumer, you go to a website and you look up stores that sell sofas and you get a nice list of 20, 30, 40 stores that's ingestible. If you type it in and you get a, a list of 3000 stores, well, it's too much, right? Yeah. You know, you're not going to go through 3000 stores. Maybe you go through 20 stores and find your best deal. But if you, if a list comes up at 3000 and you're like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to move yeah. on to the next thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I wonder if that need like that could be forcing curation uh, from one side, but also the audience is forcing curation too. If, if affiliates are, uh, you know, more focused on building their brand and building their audience, you know, bringing on anybody isn't going to necessarily, uh, do the trick. And, and, uh, uh, that's great information. Now, as far as like you guys have had to deal with, especially back then, the uh, coupon sites are garbage. They're just stealing my commission. I have one of the founders of, you know, a long-term deal site uh, that uh, we've worked with for the entire time that, that you owned it. I, I think we work with them still. Um, how did you, how did you address that discussion with advertisers? That we were just grabbing their cookies at the last minute. <laughs> yeah. And providing um, no value. <laughs> um, well, 
like I said before, you know, once a shopper leaves a merchant site, no matter how far along in that purchase process they are, no matter what they, how they built their cart, anything, once they leave your site, you don't have any guarantee they're going to come back to your site. Now there might be, you know, th there's all sorts of percentages of once they get to your site, there's this amount of percentage that they'll make a purchase. Once they put something in the cart, that percentage goes up. Once they get to the second or third screen in the cart, every screen in the cart, you know, that percentage goes up, that a conversion is going to happen. But once they leave your site, you want them back to your site. I mean, and that's what yeah. deals and coupon sites do. And if they come to a site, if they end up on a deal and coupon site, because they, they see that box that says enter coupon code here on your cart. So they go say, oh, let me go look for that coupon code. There's no telling where they're going to land. You know, they may land on a competitor site or they may see a 5% off coupon for you, but a, a, their competitor has a 20% off coupon. So they're saying, oh, well, let me go look at that 20% off one, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah. you know, we're talking about cart abandonment. You could almost look at deals and coupon site as a cart abandonment tool, you know, because um, certainly not all traffic from deal and coupon sites come while you're in the cart. Um, there's a lot of traffic driven in other ways, you know, that start the process. But that this particular conversation we're having now, you know, you could consider that, you know, the your priority once a person leaves your merchant site should be to get them back to that merchant site. And that's what a deal and coupon site can do for you. Gotcha. No, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, again, you're giving me lots of new stuff. Uh, uh, I, I hadn't, uh, you know, we hadn't really thought about it as, as well. It's usually like, well, if they weren't there, they wouldn't come back. Well, they are there. And now if, if, if you, if you have someone leave your site, the, the likelihood that that purchase is going to happen goes down dramatically. Mm -hmm. And if you're not working with these partners and then the key for what, you know, and that's what we've been doing at JEB is how you work with them is the key. If you if you're not engaged with those particular partners, if if uh, if you're just either throwing them out completely or letting them in on the same terms of every other affiliate, if you're not managing them uniquely and specifically, um, you're going to be either losing sales or spending too much money or some variation of, of both of those. Um, True. So yeah. So. Tell me what you're doing now and, and a little bit about FMTC. Sure. Yeah. Um, FMTC was a really good, natural um, transition for, for me and my work career. Because uh, as I mentioned, at, at a deal taker, we started using FMTC, I think, in like 2010. Yeah, yeah. Before that, we were adding all of our offers manually. We were looking at newsletters from... Um, merchants and OPMs. We were picking and choosing what offers to put in. We had a really cool um, back-end product where we could add these pretty quick, but it's still an actual human being adding every single offer. Uh, so we researched it. FMTC had a great product even back in 2010 to not only aggregate all these offers, you know, deals, coupons, Categories, you know, all these offers, but 
but they clean them, they test them. Uh, you know, today, at least, you know, we test every single link. We test every single coupon code. Um, we correct the uh, grammar and everything of, of offers as they come in. So, you know, you get a real clean, curated feed of those offers without having to manually input each one. So, um, yeah, so we subscribe to them. We put them in. The way we handled it was we put the offers in a queue on deal taker we'd approve the ones we like we'd discard the ones we don't like you know and it's it it, it took a probably three or four full-time person job you know to keep up with 1500 merchants yeah. to one person you know maybe going through and curating offers from the fmtc feed you know for a couple hours a day so you know right there you're saving a ton of overhead so We've been using FMTC since uh, 2010. I'm a big advocate of it. So when DealTaker started trending down and we sold it in 2018, in fact, even before I sold it, and I'm starting to kind of think, okay, what's my next step? What's my next career path? Um, I thought of two companies to reach out to first. One was Affiliate Summit, because I've been to, you know, 35 Affiliate Summits. I know what <laughs> yeah. it's all about. I'm like... Yeah, that would be kind of cool to work there. And then I reached out to FMTC and uh, FMTC didn't have a position at the time, but a couple months later they said, Hey, you know, why don't you come on as a contractor and try it out? And um, that's kind of how I fell into it. And that's like three and a half years ago now. So uh, it's been a great ride. Um, we've really solidified the product, improved the product and added some complimentary products. You know, we're working on like a product feed. Uh, FMTC has their own browser extension. We've been talking about browser extensions, but yeah. um, you know, you can install the browser extension and go on a merchant site and see what kind of, what network their program is in, what kind of terms they're offering, you know, stuff like that from a browser extension. So we've got some really cool things going on, going on today and some really good plans uh, coming up in the future that we're real excited about. That's awesome. And I'll have to have Brooke on the podcast too. One of the questions when I saw FMTC come through is uh, from an advertiser's perspective is, I don't know what my value was and everyone having the same offers. I thought it would dilute, um, you know, this area, everyone had the same access to, to everything. Uh, but that definitely uh, didn't happen. Many of our, if not all of our clients, uh, use the the FMTC. What's the what's the biggest advantage to to using it for the advertiser? I mean, it's just really the time and overhead savings. Like I said, we went from like four full time employees to one person monitoring it a couple hours a day. So it's really about doing all that work for you. And yes, when you um subscribe to our feed. We've cleaned it. We've tested and everything. But yeah, that offer might be the same offer as other publishers subscribing to our feed. Um, but once you get the offer, you can do whatever you want with it on the publisher side. So a lot of publishers might manipulate some offers. You know, some of our publishers might say, okay, here's our top 50 merchants. When we get those offers, we're going to you know, change some wording around or give them some placement. But our long tail, we're just going to let ride with FMTC. Um, we also have an offering within FMTC for custom content. So if you do want to get unique offers to you specifically, or at least uniquely worded offers 
to a publisher site specifically, we can handle that for you as well by, you know, you're using your own style guide. We've got the human power on our side. So as I mentioned, we're going to save you a lot of overhead of human power at your company. On our side, we got a ton of humans working at FMTC. I mean, I think we've got um, 35 or 40 or more um, data processors who it is their job all day to get these offers in from feeds and newsletters and clean them up, test them, click on every single one. And you can imagine that is quite an undertaking, but we have that human power trained, ready to go. So moving into something like custom content, rather than you hiring a bunch of people to manipulate these offers, you can just pay us and we can do it. You know, we've already got the humans in place ready to go. So Awesome. Well, Alan, this has been enlightening and uh, just a great conversation. If someone wants to uh, get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? You can look me up on LinkedIn. Um, you could go to fmtc.co, not, not .com, just .co, fmtc.co, and you can find out about us all there. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough. This was great. We are a few minutes over our time, so hopefully I'm not making you late for anything. Um, really picked up some great things, uh, you know, curated uh, number of merchants, um, your lessons learned from your startup and, and selling and buying and selling. Uh, was fantastic. So uh, I'm sure our our listeners are going to get as, as much out of this conversation as I did. And uh, yeah, looking forward to someday maybe seeing you at our 36th summit in person. Uh, someday in the future would be fantastic. No, that sounds great. I really appreciate your time, Jamie. Keep up the great work. You're one of the vets in this industry. You're one of the good guys. I've never done a podcast or an interview like this before, but when you reached out, I love you, man. So of course I said, yes. Oh, well, I appreciate that, man. Much love uh, to you too. And yeah. So if you are listening, um, we're, we're going to include a bunch of this stuff in the show notes. Uh, but Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Man. Oh man. What a great podcast. First of all, Alan, thank you so much for taking the time uh, and you know your first podcast, you were fantastic. Uh, but to our listeners, wow, did, I, there's just so much here. You know, definitely in the acquisition, the sale, and the purchase of companies, how important it is to have your paperwork together, your finances, your financial reporting uh, together, the difference between an asset and a stock purchase. One of the really great points that I thought Alan demonstrated so well and educated us on is is the importance to have an innovator and an implementer. As an entrepreneur and and a founder of several startups, uh, I can tell you how right he is. The innovation is vital, uh, but without the implementation, you have great ideas that go unrealized. Really, really a good uh, discussion. Then we talk about one one of the other things was the number of merchants on a site. A lot of our clients and advertisers, you may be struggling with, why aren't they letting me on the site? Why isn't this site allowing me to integrate more? merchants means you know a better product for you right 
Not necessarily. So it was really interesting to see that uh, there was a, a bunch of different things going on. And, and we continue to talk about affiliates becoming the brands that the customers want to go to first. And this, this rise of the brand is, is forcing advertisers to, uh, to kind of show the affiliate why they should work with them instead of the other way around. So many good things. I hope you found this as uh, interesting and educational and entertaining as I did. Uh, Alan, you are also one of the good guys and thank you for, really appreciate you saying that, but you know and can recognize that because you are one as well. A uh, good trusted friend for a long time. So uh, definitely, if you want to learn more about FMTC, go to fmtc.co. And if you want to touch base with Alan on any of those things, uh, we will include his LinkedIn link below. And remember, if you want to know if your affiliate program is positioned to scale and scale profitably uh, over the next 12 months, you definitely want to go to jbcommerce.com slash accelerator there you can download a checklist that'll walk you through and help you determine whether you're positioned or not uh, and if you need help with anything at all there are two ways to get help with no obligations no cost to you you can email me at get help at jbcommerce.com uh, and i will answer any questions that you have you can also go to calendly.com slash jamie birch and they're set up 15 minutes 30 minutes even an hour of my time uh, and we can talk about any of the struggles you have with your affiliate program at all. So please don't hesitate to use those. And if you found this episode interesting, could you please share it? LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, share this podcast. Go to Apple Podcast and Stitcher uh, and Spotify and give us a rating. We would love those five-star ratings. That helps us get these conversations out more. So anyway, I hope this was entertaining. Thank you for listening.